Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Good morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, or if you haven't been here for a while, you might want to know that we are at the beginning, near the beginning of a series where we are dealing with issues and culture that sometimes are very confusing, sometimes very frustrating, and a lot of times people in our churches have not really work through those things in their mind and hearts to understand what the Scripture says. And we have families and friends, acquaintances at work that struggle with these issues. And so we feel compelled to deal with them from the Word of God. Last week we looked at gender identity. Next week we're going to look at the behavior that comes out of that for some in the LGBTQ community, typically called homosexual activity and behavior. The week after that, we're going to talk about procreation. Is it recreation? And then we're going to talk about an issue that comes out of that abortion. Today, we are looking at then a bridge point between gender identity and homosexuality, same-sex marriage. Would you pray with me? Father, give us wisdom to hear your words and to discern the truth that you have spoken to us in love so that we might love others by telling them what we understand your truth to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anthony Kennedy in 2015 wrote in his summary decision by the majority in favor of same-sex marriage. It goes like this. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were, as some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate. Marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death, It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. You notice he didn't say the Supreme Court grants it. He said the constitutional basis for it is right. Just about everything that he says in that statement, I would agree with wholeheartedly. It's the law of the land. It is legal. The question is, is it right? You know, uh, in 2005, the Texas definition of marriage was a referendum that went before the people of the state of Texas in Proposition 2 to change the Constitution, and it passed by 76% to 24%, stating this, that the definition of marriage is solely the union of 
one man and one woman. The state could not recognize any legal status identical to that or similar to that. Marriage is the union of one man and one woman. The state was not allowed then to recognize any legal status that had been confirmed by any other state as defining marriage within the boundaries of Texas. That decision was overturned then, nine years later, by a federal district court in, West, in western Texas, and it went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and a hearing date was set in 2015. What I'm doing now is to describe how we got to where we are today. You see, by 2015, 36 states, the District of Columbia, and Guam all had legalized in one way or another by statute or by judicial ruling same-sex marriage. You see, in the preceding years, five years or so before, up to 2014, there had been numerous cases that had gone to district courts under five circuit courts, and all of those district courts then decided for the plaintiffs that being that same-sex marriage should be legal. The review of four circuit courts upheld the district court's decisions, but one did not. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the district court's decision. In other words, this is a double, double, double ne negative. <laughs> in other words, uh, the, law had, the, the law had been in those states that same-sex marriage was illegal. The district courts then ruled that it was legal, and then the Sixth Circuit Court overturned that in a consolidated case called Oberg, Obergfield versus Hodges. And then they did this on the precedent of a, of a uh, judicial decision by the Minnesota Supreme Court, 1970, 45 years earlier, that had said that same-sex marriage was not legal. So all of this then came to 2015. And in 2015, Obergfell versus Hodges went from the Sixth Circuit Court to be reviewed by the Supreme Court, whether it was constitutional or not. And a five to four decision on the 26th of June in 2015, the majority of the court determined that Obergfell versus Hodges' decision at the Sixth Court was not constitutional. In other words, same-sex marriage should be legal and the law of the land according to the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause and the Protection Clause, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The rationale was this that it is the right of couples to be able to express their identity because it's a matter of personal choice, and that's inherent in our concept of individual autonomy. It is right for them to be able to express their identity because of the importance of two-person union is a kind of union unlike any other. It is important for them to express their identity because this safeguards the right of those persons to raise children and have a family and a marriage, and it safeguards their right of identity by making sure that they can benefit from society's benefits that are associated with marriage and to create a stable environment in which to raise a family. Same-sex marriage is illegal throughout the land. I made a statement two weeks ago that a law does not make something right or wrong. Same-sex marriage was not wrong because the law said it was not right. Same-sex marriage is not right because the law today says it is not wrong. The question is this, what does Scripture say about same-sex marriage? 
I'm not going to have you stand because the verse is so short. By the time you stand, you're going to be sitting down. Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, the meaning of this is pretty clear. Marriage is to be a binary relationship, that is, male, one man, female, one woman, and they come together to form what? A one flesh union. And the way I describe this in pastoral counseling for marriage is what they have done is they have formed a third person. This is a one flesh, one body. This third person did not exist before marriage, and it is to last forever. So you have the man and you have the woman, and they become one flesh, and it's like a third person united. It's almost Trinitarian. The context of this, of course, is based on Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, which we looked at last week. Marriage reflects the imago Dei, the image of God. You see both husband and wife then come together as male and female to reflect the image of God. He created them in His image, male and female. The purpose of this one flesh union is found in Genesis 1 as well, and that is to fulfill their calling. And what is their calling? Last week we talked about that. It is to replenish the earth, to fill the earth. By what? By procreation, not just recreation. To be fruitful and to multiply. And then later Jesus affirmed this. He reiterated it when the Pharisees came to him with the test question. We've got a test for you, Jesus. And they asked him about divorce. Tell us about divorce. And you remember what he said in Matthew, the 19th chapter. And he answered and he said to them, Have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female? And that he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So he not only reiterates the not old covenant law, but that which preceded the old covenant law, upon which the old covenant law was based, he reiterates that this is legitimate in the new covenant age. It continues. It is permanent. And he then strengthens that statement by adding this, that that bond is not only a one flesh bond, but it is indissolubable. It is not to be broken in this life. You see, the fundamental issue on either side, I think, is this. The, I'm going to use the word traditional, but I don't mean that it's because it's tradition. It's biblical. The traditional biblical position on marriage is that it is to be a permanent one flesh union between one man and one woman. Binary, male and female, in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And the primary purposes are twofold, companionship and reproduction, procreation. There is a complementary relationship of opposite kinds of bodies, that is, bodies that are different from each other to complement and to complete each other, like a jigsaw fitting together. The other position, the progressive position, says this. It doesn't focus on the, the sex differentiation. What it says is marriage is a permanent covenant relationship of self-giving love, and none of us would disagree with that, but that's the fundamental definition for the progressive position. You see, for that position, sexual difference is not essential. 
God's image, you see, as we talked about last week, God's image for this position is it's a broad array. It's not binary. It's not male and female. There are many, many, many shades of difference in between. What matters really in the progressive position that supports same-sex marriage is love and unity, faithfulness and growing in God's image, and all of those things we would certainly affirm. The case for same-sex marriage, then, I'm going to lay it out as clearly as I can understand what Christians from Scripture say legitimizes same-sex marriage. And there are many Christians that say that. They would say this, God's blessing is available for same gender or same sex relationships. You see, God's purpose in giving his gifts of love, sex or sexuality, and marriage are to grow in conformity with God's image, to, to fit the pattern of Christ's self-giving love and to grow in that kind of love so that we model Christ's love for the church by giving ourselves selflessly and sacrificially to another person. So you see the focus really there is on sacrificial love between two people. You see the dilemma that they face in this position, those that advocate same-sex marriage, and not all are gender disoriented or dysphoric. Not all of them are homosexual. Not all of them are gay. Not all of them are lesbians. But the ones that hold this position that are that struggle with sexual identity are sincere Christians. They say that they struggle with a same-sex orientation. They say that this same-sex orientation is by nature. They were born that way. They did not choose to be that way. And we talked about that last week, and some of that clearly is true. Those that are intersexual that have either mixed organs or maybe something is different about their biological makeup, or whether it's due to gender dysphoria. And we talked about that last week, and there are other sources for that, where the, the understanding of one's gender does not match the body. They say that this is not a choice of theirs. You see, what happens is the gender doesn't match the body, and therefore it doesn't match the biblical descriptions of male and female, and they struggle. The traditional moral arguments then that I have just outlined a moment ago then caused them great problems. It puts them in an impossible situation. They, they have this choice, either to stop being gay and marry heterosexually. That's one possibility. But the problem with that is they say, we cannot change. It's not a matter of the will and choosing. Heterosexual marriage doesn't solve the problem. It either causes us to live a lie or pushes us to infidelity outside that marriage. The other choice of the three is to practice celibacy. That fact is, the Bible does not require celibacy. The biblical norm, in fact, for people, for most people, is companionship in a marital relationship. After all, God looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Unless a person is given the gift of celibacy, which is a God-given calling, you see, this imposes a life of loneliness and suffering if we try to practice celibacy and we don't have that gift. So it's either stop being gay or practice celibacy or then pursue an illicit relationship for personal fulfillment and spiritual growth, which the Bible, they say, condemns and God condemns. And it suggests this, because they were born that way and God made them that way, 
Some would even go this far to say that God has predestined them then to be condemned by his wrath. Follow that logic. This is a very painful experience. Some gay believers, Christians, try to follow traditional doctrine. They live celibate lives and they pray earnestly for a solution. But in this state, they say, they experience no fruit of faithfulness. And by that, I'm not talking about the fruit of the Spirit, but they don't experience the kind of joy and peace that one should if they're faithfully following God. Instead, they experience frustration and bitterness and even ridicule from friends and associates. They feel alienated from God because they do not hear him answer. And it comes to them that perhaps he is an uncaring judge that simply wants to condemn. And in the most extreme cases, it leads some to, of course, the ultimate solution, and that is suicide. The solution, they would say, is this. If it is possible, if it is just possible that God can bless a same-sex relationship, then traditional doctrine misinterprets Scripture. They're not saying that Scripture's wrong. They're saying that the traditional position misinterprets Scripture, and we need to search for better logical and scriptural answers. And so the logic goes something like this. There are sincere gay believers in same-sex relationships, and those sincere Christians are not frustrated. They're not angry. They are content and fulfilled in that relationship, and they therefore produce good fruit. They do experience joy and peace and love. And after all, Jesus said that my followers will be identified by the fruit that they produce. So you see, they're producing good fruit, therefore they must be sincere Christians. Secondly, they would argue this way. This enables them to be fulfilled completely and grow in God's image. You see, to prevent anyone, not just homosexuals, but heterosexuals, to prevent anyone from pursuing their natural sexual orientation is emotionally damaging. There must be an, a moral equilibrium in our lives. We must not suppress that physical desire in us that helps to make us whole. Everyone, another way of putting it is, everyone needs love. Even if it's in a non-traditional relationship that is not sanctioned by the majority. You see, we become most fulfilled, they would say, when we give ourselves to each other self-sacrificially in a mutual relationship. So one argument would be the good fruit argument. Another would be that it's necessary to be fulfilled and to grow in God's image. And a third argument I think is pretty obvious, and that is it is the lesser of two evils. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, it is better to be married than to do what? Than to burn, to burn with a lust. They would then also turn to scriptural answers and the first of those is covenant fidelity. You see, the purpose of marriage is covenant fidelity found in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not about differentiating between sexes. The foundation of marriage then is a loving, long-lasting, faithful, committed companionship. God made Eve so Adam would not be lonely. Companionship is needed. Adam is delighted when he looks at Eve and he says, he notices the similarity. He's not like the other animals. This is what? Bone of my bones. It's flesh of my flesh. 
You see, there's a commonality, there's a similarity there, and this position would emphasize that similarity, and I think you know where that's going. They would go on to say this about the covenant fidelity. Jesus never addressed and he never condemned same-sex relationships. Jesus' quote that we refer to in Matthew 19, and it's also in Mark the 10th chapter, does not condemn same-sex marriages. He simply emphasizes the heterosexual nature of the first marriage against the background of divorce. And you see, that, that order in creation that God established preceded Moses' law. Now, here's what they're saying. What Jesus is talking about is he's talking about divorce. He's not talking about the permanence of this binary relationship. What he's saying is this. Yes, that's the way it was before Moses' law came along. Marriage was the standard that was not to be broken. And then Moses came came along and he did what? He wrote this law on divorce because of your sin. So they're not saying that Jesus is condemning homosexual relationships. He is simply repeating the fact that those two persons are no longer two but one. A second biblical argument beyond covenant fidelity would be this. Procreation is not central to the marriage relationship. Uh, They would admit that, yes, one of the purposes of marriage is reproduction, sexual reproduction, procreation. And this does, in in fact, require sexual differentiation, male and female, no question about that. But procreation is not the reason for marriage, the basic reason for marriage. It doesn't define marriage. A lack of children never annuls a marriage. Couples can be married without children, but marriages cannot exist without fidelity. You see, the emphasis is on fidelity. The Old Testament, no question, emphasized procreation. That was necessary for economic stability, for older couples to have younger children to take care of them, and especially widows. It was necessary for tribal survival. That was before the resurrection. One's legacy was seen in the children that they produced. But you see, it's different in the New Covenant, the New Testament. Now that we know about the resurrection, the New Testament, they would say, de-emphasizes procreation as central to marriage. You see, in heaven, after all, we will be like the angels. There is no need for procreation then. And they would say that the New Testament de-emphasizes procreation. And in fact, Paul recommended, if possible, that people should remain single so that believers could be more devoted to the work of the kingdom. Marriage necessarily involves procreation to produce children. But the problem with that, Paul says, it will then produce family responsibilities that some kind, sometimes can sidetrack us from ministry. You see, this second point about procreation, they would say the traditional view emphasizes the anatomical differences of male and female for marriage. But the New Testament de-emphasizes it. A third scriptural, scriptural argument has to do with interpretive, pro, uh, interpretive problems from Scripture. For example, the biblical authors did not really address the same-sex issue. They're silent on it. You see, they're unfamiliar with a modern concept of loving, stable, covenantal, permanent 
homosexual relationships. That was unknown in the ancient world, I say. Secondly, most references to homosexuality were not about marriage. And we'll talk about this next week when we talk about homosexuality. They would say that most of those references about homosexuality are about exploitative activities, such as male prostitution, cultic worship in the temples involving males, and child abuse. Another interpretive problem has to do with few passages that apparently condemn homosexual relations. There are few. They're culturally conditioned. Times have changed. And now it is possible for homosexuals to live in a loving relationship unlike it was in those days. Another interpretive problem is an inconsistent application. For example, in the separation laws in the Old Testament, the homosexual activity is condemned alongside wearing mixed fabric and sowing mixed seed and intercourse during menstruation. And they would say, you know, those are outdated codes that we don't observe anymore. Then why do we continue to condemn homosexual activity? They would say that the Bible is silent on same-sex marriage. So why not adjust with the progressive times and face reality? We've done this with slavery. We've done this with women's rights. Then why do we not do this with the sexual relationship between people? A fourth scriptural area has to do with modeling Christ and his church. And this, of course, focuses mainly on Ephesians 5. They would say that biblical marriage imitates Christ's self-sacrifice, his sacrifice of himself for his bride, the church. Traditionalists would say that this can only be modeled fully by heterosexual couples because of the imagery that is used in Ephesians 5, and it reiterates the male-female background of Genesis 2. But the progressives would say this, same-sex unions can model the love of Christ for the church. And in fact, Paul is emphasizing similarity here when he talks about the one flesh relationship. And the unity is emphasized when he talks about his, the husband looking at his own body. Christ and the church are one person. He is the head. There's no differentiation of persons there. You see, this is not about differentiation in Ephesians 5 and Christ and the church. It's about unity. And it's about faithful love and union, not differentiation. A fifth scriptural argument would be this. God blesses marriages beyond the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, yes, was male and female. But if you look further in scripture, God blesses other kinds of marriages that are not physical male and female marriages. After all, look at God and Israel, described as a marriage. Look at the New Testament, Christ and the church. It's a marriage in the future. In heaven, it's going to be the marriage of the Lamb with the New Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. A sixth argument would be that God delights in the road less traveled. You see, he confounds traditional human expectations of normal patterns. And you've heard me say this time and time again. I'm not saying that I endorse this position, but you've heard me talk about God of the great reversals. They would say, for example, it was unexpected that Abraham and Sarah would conceive at almost 100 years of age. It was inconceivable that God would use the underdog Israelite slaves to accomplish his plan of redemption instead of a prosperous and powerful nation like Egypt. It was inconceivable that the 
unexpected Messiah, the expected Messiah would be so unexpectedly meek and submissive and not politically powerful. It was unexpected that God would use the shame and the scandal and the stumbling block of the cross to accomplish his purpose. They would go on to say that God blesses unconventional ways that were previously unexpected. Look at the incarnation, God becoming human. Look at the crucifixion, God man pouring himself out. Look at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit pouring himself not out, not just upon Jews, but upon all kinds of people, including men and women and children. Look at the conversion of the Gentiles whom the Jews saw as unclean. And there's a parallel here. Many Christians look at homosexual Christians as being unclean. You see, Gentiles were not required to repent of their being Gentile. So why should gays repent of being Gentile? And if you want to talk about a great reversal or something unexpected in sexual matters, look at the virgin birth. This was not a typical male-female bond, and it involves scandal of an unwed mother and dishonor and shame. What a perfect picture of redeeming the sexually marginalized. You see, they would ask this question about the road less traveled. Yes, God's majority pattern is for heterosexual marriage. But can a minority opinion also be legitimate? Is this really the majority, or is it majoritarianism, where the majority suppresses and oppresses the minority? The road less traveled can be just as right as the broad thoroughfare of the majority. And then the final argument from Scripture would be this. It's about fairness and civility. You see, the gospel is equitable. It's fair. It's leveling. There's no distinction in Christ between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. The majority should refrain then on being uncivilly judgmental. Don't condemn sincere believers because they practice sex differently. Nobody knows a person's heart. Nobody knows whether or not their motives are pure and whether they're sincerely following Christ. So we should not condemn those who are disobeying Christ's, uh, God's command in Genesis 1. If we do, we're disobeying Christ's command not to judge. Now, I've spent about 15 minutes covering the same-sex position. Let me take about 10 minutes and cover the case against same-sex. You see, this position says that God's blessing is available only for binary, that is male-female, one-flesh relationships. It involves the nature of marriage itself that is firmly established permanently by God at creation and His plan. The need for completion and procreation are at the heart of it with the anatomical differences that are involved. The fall distorted God's plan and caused improper sexual desires, and they're in need of redemption. Heterosexual marriage is a living symbol, then, of the union of Christ and the church. Those four things. The first of those, God's creation ordinance. God's plan for creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. To be made in His image, male and female, woman was created to be a companion she is like man, that's true. She's similar, but she's also very different. Taken from him, she didn't remain a part of him. There are other contrasts like this. There are other differentiations in, in, in uh, creation. Light and dark, sun and moon, sea and land. So it, there is a difference in the relationship when the one flesh is formed. Jesus confirms this plan in Matthew 19. 
So what Jesus is doing there is, yes, he's addressing the issue of divorce, but he's also saying that plan was permanent in the new covenant. And he not only says that, but he adds that it is to be permanent in this life. You see, God's exclusive and permanent plan, as far as we understand it, for marriage and sexuality preceded the law. And it's been undermined by the fall. God's plan for sex, marriage, is binary. You say same-sex unions then counter God's original plan at two levels. It mocks the difference between male and female, and it subverts his plan for procreation. So the second point is completion and procreation. God intended man and woman to be connected by their otherness with anatomical differences to make them one flesh, to fit together and to complete one another in the image of God. And it enables us to continue God's plan of creation through procreation to make other humans. Procreation is essential to sustaining God's creation. It's not the primary purpose of marriage, which is companionship, but it's necessary to sustain the human race. Marriage is not essential for wholeness. There are many among us who are single. Marriage isn't essential for wholeness. But for those that are not married, God gives a gift of singleness and celibacy and deep intimacy with him. So marriage is not the be-all and the end-all, but for marriage, it must involve procreation. And then we come to the fall and redemption. The fall brought disorder and corruption to identity, that is, intersexuality and gender dysphoria. It brought disorder to relationships, to love and sexuality and marriage. And this includes all kinds of sexual impropriety. The fall not only affected sexuality in terms of homosexual behavior, but also fornication, adultery, incest, bestiality, and I'll stop there. God's redemptive plan is designed to restore that order of love and sexuality and marriage, and it continues under the new covenant standards unchanged since creation. And then they say that marriage is a living symbol. It is a living symbol of four things. It is a symbol of the image of God, unifying male and female, and he is male and female. It's a symbol of the Trinity because the two persons come together to form a union of a third person that is the one flesh relationship. It is a symbol of Christ being the head of the church, his body. It is a symbol of the heavenly marriage of the Lamb and New Jerusalem. And this can only be accomplished. This symbolic thing can only be accomplished through a heterosexual marriage that fully symbolizes it. And then they answer the objections by the supporters of same-sex union. Let me run through these very quickly. What about the Bible being silent on same-sex? Well, it is also silent, and that's true. It doesn't explicitly condemn same-sex relationships in, in that kind of language. But of course, the laws and many of the passages by inference do. It's silent on many other controversial issues today, such as eugenics, that is, engineering, genetics, for the wrong purposes. But just because the Bible's silent on it doesn't mean that they're right today. What about references in Scripture to homosexuality not referring to committed homose homosexual relationships, only exploitive activities? We will see next week 
that some of the references, in fact, do speak about exploitative relationships. But a few of them directly condemn homosexual behavior itself, and we'll talk about those next week. What about passages that condemn sexuality being culturally conditioned? The fact of the matter is the standard was permanently set at creation before the law, and it hasn't changed since then. God's order for creation, Jesus confirmed for the new covenant age, and it transcends all times, all ages, all cultures. What about the scripture being, application being inconsistent? What about those separation laws that we talked about? Well, most of those we don't follow today because they have to do with purity laws. But this has to do not only with purity, it has also to do with moral behavior. And these condemnations against homosexual activity are found outside the separation laws. The specific arguments that they have raised then, there are answers for from the Bible. The, the biblical authors were ignorant about loving relationships between committed homosexuals. No, there is in fact evidence written evidence recorded from history that there were lifelong romantic sexual unions in Jesus' day, and it included ceremonies. Paul was cosmopolitan. He understood what was going around, on around him. He traveled throughout the Mediterranean world, and he used Old Testament codes that continued to apply to condemn incest. And he does the same, as we will see next week in Romans 1, to condemn homosexual activity based on Genesis 1 and 2. What about the charge of loneliness? Adam looks at Eve, and there is one who is like him for his companionship, sameness. And so it's okay to reconcile your loneliness by having a relationship with one who is like you, male to male, female to female. Well, yes, Eve was like Adam, but she was different also. She was like him as a species, but she was anatomically different. Friends, feelings are important but they don't trump what's right. Companionship is good, but not if it exchanges the natural for the unnatural. What about fruitfulness? Gay Christians can be fruitful. This proves that their behavior pleases God. This is a compelling emotional argument. It's a compelling argument based on experience. Maybe you have friends who are gay and they say they're Christians and they're bearing Christian fruit. It's a compelling argument, but we must also remember that Jesus said it's not just about behavior, it is also about what we believe and teach. We must, as Norman Geisler says, look at not only the fruit of behavior, but the fruit of doctrine. After all, look at the cults today. I'll be explicit. The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses they live morally exemplary lives, but their doctrines are heretical. They live good lives, but they're false prophets. And what did Jesus say about false prophets? You will know them by their what? Fruit. And he's not just talking about behavior. He's talking about what they teach. Fruitfulness is one thing. We also need to look at the fruitfulness of what people believe. What about fairness? and equity. The charge is there's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. This eliminates the distinctions in the body of Christ. The corollary would be then there is neither gay nor straight in the kingdom of God. You see, 
When Paul said this, he's not erasing the racial and the social and gender realities. They still exist. Otherwise, Ephesians 2 doesn't make any sense. How can you unite Gentiles and Jews into one body? Otherwise, Ephesians 5 does not make any sense. How can you unite male and female into one church if they don't exist? Now, the obvious meaning of that text is that Christ invites all kinds of people without prejudice, and all are equal in the sight of God. And finally, what about the issue of civility and judgmentalism? Christians shouldn't judge other believers who sincerely follow Christ. Jesus did not mean in this that we should not discern and know right from wrong. We must hold ourselves and others accountable for the truth. We should also go further and help to restore those who are in error and teach mistruth and moral misbehavior. We should not do it hypocritically. We should not do it from a standpoint of moral superiority. But we must judge. We must discern, and we must do this with humility, recognizing that we too are sinners. So I've laid out the two cases, for same-sex based on what sincere Christians say the Bible says same-sex can be blessed by God, and the, what I would consider to be the biblical position that is true to God's foundation in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So what words would I leave with you? Most of what I'm going to say now is what I believe. Near the end, I'm going to include all of us. I hope that you would believe what I say. First of all, I defend their duty. I have a, I have a, a duty to defend the adjudicated constitutional rights of people who are engaged in a same-sex marriage. Due process, equal protection, non-discrimination. I took an oath when I was an officer in the United States Army to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and I still believe in doing that. I respect their commitment to long life, long-term monogamous fidelity. I respect that. I applaud their desire to give themselves sacrificially to one another. This is a good thing to give yourself sacrificially to other people. I agree with their emphasis on unity of the two persons, unity, unity, and likeness, but not to the point that it blurs the distinction between the genders in a God-ordained marriage. I sympathize with their yearning for companionship. We all yearn for companionship. I empathize with their suffering. I cannot sympathize with it because I'm not in their shoes. I empathize with their suffering, but I'll tell you who does sympathize with them. I know who sympathizes with them. I know who struggles with them in their journey, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I may empathize, but I can't sympathize. I do not support. I do not affirm their moral claims upon which same-sex union is based. I do not affirm their interpretations of Scripture. Now I come to the we's. I think that we should oppose these ideas being taught in our schools as normal. It's legal. That's a fact of life. People need to be protected. We do not discriminate against people. We want them protected. But these principles of same-sex marriage upon which the marriages are built 
should not be taught in our schools for our children to learn outside the home. We should continue to oppose all types of sexual sin. And I'm, I'm not trying to blur over the homosexual issue. We must stand against homosexual activity. It is sinful in the eyes of God. But we also need to continue to condemn all aberrant sexual activity. And then we should not sit in judgment on their relationship with Christ. You know, I've had people ask me, and I'll deal with this more particularly next week, can homosexuals be Christians? Can they be Christ followers? I'll just say this. I believe they can, and I don't say that from a position of moral superiority like I'm judging. I believe that there are sincere people who want to follow Christ who really, really struggle and I do, th- do not think that we ought to sit in judgment about their relationship with Jesus Christ because, friends, I do not know their heart and I do not know the relationship with Christ. I do believe this. I do not believe that God blesses same-sex marriage because the activity pleases Him. I believe that we must speak the truth in mature love and we must follow Christ's example. And His example is full of grace. And truth. We beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father, sent from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. As we sing our hymn of invitation, those are the subjects of the first two stanzas. Gracious Spirit, dwell on me, I myself would gracious be. Truthful Spirit, dwell with me, I myself would truthful be. We must go in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to communicate what we understand Scripture saying to our friends, to encourage and to walk beside them and to love them, not to be condemning, not to question their relationship with Jesus Christ, but to encourage them to have one with the living Lord of all creation who made them male and female. Let's stand together as we respond to God's invitation this morning. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.